I'm Fathery. This is Dave. And this is Text Trek. Engage. Welcome back aboard the Starship Texas for the 138th installment of the Text Trek podcast, the home of Star Trek fandom from deep in the heart of Texas, where we talk all about Star Trek all the time. And tonight we are returning to Deep Space Nine for the first time in three years, I believe. We're, we're finally getting around to doing more Deep Space Nine talk. It's on my schedule, Fathery. This is how this is how I marathon things uh, <laughs> at that speed. Yeah, like a, a few years ago, I think it was in 2018. I might be wrong, but Dave and I discussed season one of Deep Space Nine. He had uh, not seen it when it first aired. He's just getting around to watching it now. Mm-hmm. It is the it is the Star Trek of which I have seen the least. I had seen more. Uh, maybe at the time I had seen less Voyager. Uh, uh, no, actually, at the time we were recording, I'd seen a little bit more Voyager. And I'd seen some Enterprise and all that stuff, even though I hadn't finished those shows. Um, but yeah, DS9, heralded by many, is the best. Uh, it was the one I had seen. <laughs> Including myself. Yeah. That... It's not an unpopular opinion these days. I think it used to be. It used to be. But, Father, you have swayed people to it. I, I suppose. Uh, it kind of caught me off guard when other people figured it out. It's like, wait a minute. I thought I was the only one smart enough to know DS9 was the best. <laughs> but I guess I guess y'all finally caught up to me. But th- that's okay. Uh, no, but th- this is the one that I've watched the most. And I say that as someone... I've seen every episode of Trek at least four times. And that's, like, including, like... That last season of Discovery, I've seen all of those four times. <laughs> like that is my the bare minimum. I've I've seen it any episode at least three times. I don't know how many times I've seen all of DS9 though. Probably like uh, getting close to a dozen times. You're like one of Dune's mentats, but about Star Trek specifically. <laughs> I guess I don't know. It doesn't. I I can't remember like every single detail, but uh, maybe with with enough rewatches, eventually I'll develop that computer brain and it'll all just be embedded. <laughs> But, um, yeah, we talked about season one, and uh, I, I called it the worst season of DS9, and you said that you I you still liked it. Liked a lot about it. Um, I mean, obviously there were lots of good standout episodes, but, you know, I, I think the same thing that uh, – the reason that Trek is kind of comfort food for people, and I think especially maybe the older episode shows can be a little bit more comfort foody because of their standalone nature and um, – they're almost they are a little bit more quietly paced at times but uh they uh you like just hanging out with those crew members it's got a pretty set cast you know usually and it's a little bit like hanging out with another family and so if you like the people that are in that mix you're gonna see some good stuff even in a sort of middling episode you're gonna be like ah that was a great cork scene or oh i really liked you know that uh bashir o'brien sequence or their friendship throughout the episode so yeah, kind of getting introduced to all of that, 
seeing the darker edge of the show right from the beginning with Cisco blackmailing uh, Quark into staying on board when everyone else was running. You know, it's it had a tone that uh, that that was one that I liked, which was uh, a, you know a little bit more of a of a realistic streak for track, of course. Well, no, we're going to be talking about season two, but we're going to split this up because these are 26 episode seasons we're dealing with. So we're going to do a uh, 13 now, and then we'll do another podcast in the, in the near future. And we'll do the uh, second half of season two episodes, 14 through 26 of season two. Yep. Which, uh, which you tell me is the, uh, the better half. I do. I, I had never thought about splitting it up like this before, but now that I, I am doing that and looking at where the episodes fall, uh, the second half of season two is definitely stronger. And just, but before we get started, because I do want to go ahead and, and and jump in, we have thirteen episodes to talk about. But but one we're thing gonna I want like, we're gonna fly through them. Yeah, we're 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 gonna we're gonna warp speed this. But one thing I want to point out is that uh, Deep Space Nine is the more character driven star trek show it has like a little bit more emphasis on character and season two there's a lot of of, of character development and, and just like like seeing new shades of these characters and, and there's a lot of stories that you know shine lights on 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 their their histories their background and i think this season they're kind of transitioning from a, a little bit more narrative focused writing in season one and in season two they're they're kind of changing gears to be becoming a more character centric show and there's a little bit of growing pains in that where actually like some of the some of the plots I think are weaker than a lot of season one episodes. But there's so much character stuff in the season that I, and we, we begin to see that stuff blossom. And that's what gets even greater and greater and greater the further you go into DS9. I think season three is leaps and bounds better than this. And then four is even better than three. And it, it really keeps going until you get to like six. Was it five or six? six. But I, six I love seconds. seven too. It just it, it we, we it kind of stops evolving at six. I think. Right, right. They've hit their their perfect groove. Yeah, but uh, let's let's talk about the circle trilogy. Is what people call these first three episodes of season two. Uh, they that is Star Trek's first three episode story arc. Uh, the episodes: the homecoming, the circle, and the siege. I'm just going to read the uh, uh, synopses for these episodes that I'm getting off of. Memory Alpha, then we'll kind of expand on that with spoilers to summarize, and we'll just talk about our, our thoughts on it. But the, the first episode, The Homecoming, Kira rescues a Bajoran resistance hero from a Cardassian labor camp. An extremist group calls for all non-Bajorans to leave Bajor. Yeah, basically, Kira goes to rescue this this famous Bajoran called uh, Lee Nollis, and there's this group called The Circle that's like a Bajoran supremacist i guess they're they they don't like any aliens they want them all to leave bajor then in the uh second episode the circle cisco and odo work to reveal the real force behind the circle's coup and we find out that the the circle they take over the bajoran government and they're actually being uh supplied weapons through the cardassians they're using a, a proxy to get the weapons there they don't know they're coming from the cardassians because the cardassians want the circle to drive the federation away from bajor so that the cardassians can take over and regain control of the the coveted wormhole then in the the third episode the, the siege cisco tries to prevent the circle from taking the station kira and dax take proof that the cardassians are the real force that is arming the circle to the Bajoran government. And they basically exposed the coup and uh, saved the day. Dave, what did you think of the Circle trilogy? 
So I thought this was a super, super badass start to the to the season. Uh, in some ways, it actually, I, I was like, uh, that and like a few strong episodes that followed led me to think I'm like, oh man, it can do no wrong. And then I did hit a few weaker episodes in there. Uh, but I think it's a great start uh, with a, 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 a politically sophisticated plot. Um, lots of uh, cool machinations between, is it uh, Kai Wynn? Is that the, is that the lady? Vedic Wynn. Vedic Wynn? Oh, okay, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, Minister Jaro... Uh, kind of their their interrelated machinations. The big guest star uh, too. He's played by Dracula. Frank uh, Frank Langella, Dracula, Skeletor, I believe, and a few <laughs> other. He's played some big villains. He's a he's a he's a commanding screen presence. Um, no, I thought it was uh, I thought it was fantastic. I noticed that like just within the first five minutes of the first episode, they had kind of. It nicely summed up every you know the previous season they 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 reminded you how unstable Bajor was and that you know they were in danger of losing it all uh you had the rise of this nationalistic movement which you know i don't know if it's like meant to parallel anything directly but i i presume it you know maybe like post world war one sort of second you know rise of german nationalism to uh you know p- paving the way for world war two um I was I was a little th- I was thinking like the Bajoran are such an oppressed people it's kind of weird to suddenly tag them with that nationalist you know smear but it is a it's a thing that happens when people are like desperate right yeah and I like that uh, there's so much diversity with the Bajorans that we see different different aspects absolutely. of their society including sexy Bajoran uh, who's the uh, who's the guy who's got the thing for. Uh, Kira. Oh, that's uh Vedic Burrell, who's her Burrell. yeah, he's he's her love interest right now on the show. Yep, yeah. Um uh, and I also uh, uh I thought that it was off to a um uh, uh <laughs> the opening scene where uh what is it? Uh, uh Quark he <laughs> throws some other uh skeevy traitor or something under the bus to um uh and again serves him up to Odo, and Odo cannot figure out why he turned this guy in. Uh, that had my favorite uh, rule of acquisition too. Just got to get, yeah. got things going on a on a <laughs> uh, on a you know pretty quick. Uh, what was it? Every once in a while, make peace with your enemies. Yeah, it, uh, confuses, it confuses the hell, the out, the of hell out of them. Yeah, uh, that one cracked me up and was the start of a lot of fun Ferengi stuff that we that's that's already gone on. In and this, then we get uh, Odo Odo deputizes Quark in the story, so they, yeah. we get to see uh, the uh, duress, the two of them like, team up. Yeah, it's kind of under duress, like a lot of things that happen with um, Quark and Odo, but uh, but yes, he does. Um, so I think the heart of that first episode is the story of Lee Nollis, the uh, the hero who kind of has feet of clay. Uh, he's re- well, by the way, badass prison break. Um, that's you know cool special effects, just a cool like uh, it's was it O'Brien and and Kira yeah. on this. Uh, you know, fast, you know, strike run where they stealth into the base, uh, and, uh, and bust out a bunch of prisoners. Um, O'Brien has to play like an Irish pimp. (laughs) Yes. He's all like, uh, he's like, uh, don't, uh, don't touch the goods until the deal is made and all this. Um, I, I kind of love when they get to do that, you know, um, it all, it honestly, father, it makes me think of role-playing games is, uh, for Brian, who's not here. Because so often characters in role-playing games have to make bluffs, and it comes down to a role usually, but they make kind of these audacious bluffs like that, and uh, 
they they tend to play out a little bit better in fiction usually than they do with a <laughs> random dice roll to support them. But um, yeah, he he is actually um, uh, Leonalis is a is a good guy and a a, a great free a fighter. But the myth that's b- blown up around him is is kind of BS, and he knows it. And he like his big fight with the Cardassian that he supposedly defeated in this mighty single handed combat. What did he like kill him in his sleep or something like that? He he killed him when he was like coming out of the the lake or the river that he was bathing in. Right. Uh, he he right. literally like caught him with his pants down. He was like standing there in his underwear. A completely heroic thing. Yeah. Um. Uh, so, uh, and he has to play with that, and, and Cisco is pushing him in the episode, and Cisco is sympathetic, but he's like, sorry, your people need you, you're gonna have to keep on being, you know, this larger-than-life legend, and that's pretty brutal to imagine, this guy just made it out of a POW camp, and Cisco's like, your, your job ain't over. <laughs> uh, that's, I, I thought that was a, like, tough, but, but believable, um, and then the one other thing I kind of wanted to mention about that first episode, at least, was just that on the more human side of things, or on the lighter side, that um, Jake comes to uh, his dad, and uh, I, I'm trying to remember, is he, is he talking about, is it dating stuff? Yeah, yeah he's yeah, going he's, on his, his first date. He's going on his first date, and there was there's, there's just this quintessential thing. Father, you've talked about them as like a really ideal father-son relationship. Uh, and he's like, hey, dad, you got a minute? And Cisco says this really very warm and convincing. He's like, for you, absolutely. <laughs> and and it's just like such a, he's such a good dad, <laughs> you know, even though he also kind of uh, misreads that, you know, <laughs> Jake wants like advice and stuff uh, from him. And uh, like, uh, <laughs> that made it uh, feel more real, though. Like he was like. He was like, oh, you, so you want my advice on, like, how to ask her out? He's like, no, I already asked her out. Because, you know, like, <laughs> parents always, like, I think, underestimate how fast their kids are growing up. Yeah, and he's freaking out because Jake is, like, talking about maybe taking her to the hollow suites and stuff. And he's like, no. no <laughs> um, so, so the episode had a lot of, like, everything that I kind of like about the show. There was sort of the warmth of the father and son thing, some great skirmishing with Odo and Quark a politically volatile situation, uh, Kira being the kind of badass that she yeah. is. Antifa K- Kira. I, I love when we, we can see her go back to her, like, guerrilla warfare roots. Absolutely. Uh, which which we'll, we'll get talked about more in uh, my, one of my favorite episodes later. But, yes. Uh, the um, best one we're going to talk about today, in my opinion. I think that's probably true. You know, there was this little small bit that I wanted to mention because the uh what is it uh vedic win and her her you know she allies with like minister jaro to to they you know they they just they want to make a power play and they're gonna they're gonna unite their sort of religious and uh forces with secular forces and you know he's gonna pr- promote her to essentially what their pope which is what what do they call it the the kai which they're kai, right there's currently an election like this is like an election year because the last kai died in season right. one and he's gonna yeah he's like i'll pull the strings i'll make it happen yeah and I, and I, by the way, I, I love that she just throws him under the fucking bus at the end of it. They're both such slimy politicians. Like, they're both yeah. such, like, hateable characters. When they're, when they're together, they're like, nothing can stop us. And he's like, <laughs> yes, we will unite. And then when it comes to it, oh, man, they just turn on each other. But um, I, I feel that they are among the scarier types of villains because they feel so real. Um, and um, 
but there was a lighter bit where one of their machinations is they put um, uh, Lee Nallis, they give him Kira's job on the station and kind of because they, of course, they're because they're secretly running or, or um, was it uh, Jaro? Uh, is he is he the one who's in charge of the secretly running the circle? Right. Yeah. Um, and he uh, you know, they don't want anything to upstage their coup, so they don't want Lee in the mix. So they they position him on DS9 to get him out of the way, and then that also you know get lets him just file Kira off to somewhere on the planet, and she ends up working at like the uh, temple, and uh, there's a bit where Vedic Riles says she's like I'm not used to feeling useless. It's clear she's just so keyed up. She wants to do things. She's goal oriented, and he's like you might want to explore feeling useless for a while, which is actually probably a really good piece of advice if she is wasn't in such a needed place. Like Kira has a lot of problems and could probably stand to just un- cut them loose for a while. I love that wacky moment too when she's like packing up to leave the station and just like everyone ended up showing up in her quarters. <laughs> it's so weird and quirky. And it was oh. almost a little too forced, but it also is a good scene. It's this combination of um, exasperation from Kira, even as people are like kind of all rallying around her. It's like all her friends. And frenemies like Quark. <laughs> um, but father, but that you enjoyed the scene though. Yeah, I agree. It does probably take things like a little too far, but I, I, I feel like it's something like I would want to write. It would be kind of like self indulgent, but I would, I, I, I just uh, find that like really entertaining. Writing strict realism can be boring, and <laughs> a little bit of heightened reality is kind of a welcome change. Sometimes I think Star Trek is pretty decent at finding that balance. I like in the the third episode uh, in the siege where they have to do the station evacuation and and the way that you know Cisco has to like kind of disobey orders we from Admiral Chakotay. This is the first use of the name Chakotay in Star Trek. <laughs> I think the spelling was a little different. Yeah, it is. It, it is different. But, but but yeah, somebody clearly liked the name, I guess. But he tells them, you know, you have to leave the station, and Cisco's like, okay, well, if we start like taking all of our equipment and stuff with us, well, that's we're going to be stuck here for days, so we'll get the civilians out and then stay behind and, and do this. So it's, it's that cool little, like, you know, work around the Prime Directive, find some loophole, you know, do whatever. Uh, Star Trek does that all the time, and it was it was fun to watch the... You, I guess this is another thing Star Trek does a lot, but, like, like the ships being taken over, like the stations being taken over, and yeah, you have well, to defend it. Yeah, I mean, it lets it. them do their, their diehard... Yeah. Uh, uh, die hard on but a it's space a team station. effort. It's not just like you know, like Picard going against some terrorist on the Enterprise and yeah, Starship yeah. Dis- Mine. Discovery when Michael Burnham was loose on the ship as a one man, you know, infiltration team was very diehard. This is this is only like in the concept of deal. This is almost more of a like like miniature guerrilla resistance movement. Um, it's like so the Alamo. The- it's like they turned Deep Space Nine into the yeah. Alamo. But they, but they do do these kind of things where they've got, you know, they're they're outthinking and outwitting the uh, the occupiers, um, and uh, yeah, it's pretty satisfying. It like gives like some nice action for the final act to it. Um, I, you know, um, I didn't like that Lee Nollis had to maybe had to die um, uh, because you know, and you had seen him kind of finding his voice when people are there was a panic over p- evacuation. And he kind of like has his leader voice, and he brings everybody uh, together. I like when he's giving like that speech when Lee Nollis is like giving like that that speech to all the the people, and and you see like Morn 
of all like you mm-hmm. got like dumbass Warren in the back, and he's like like looks like he's like actually like listen. He's like, oh, like, this guy's like really good. I'm gonna listen to him. <laughs> Did he do like one of the? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there, there's a Lee. I think does get a cool line when he dies, uh, because he'd been talking with Cisco about um, uh, Cisco basically said you're not off the hook yet, and so you know when he's di- lying mm. there dying near the end, he's like. I think he's just like off the hook after all yeah. or something like that. And it's like this almost, you know, almost kind of comedic thing, but it's super dark, you know, in the, in that context. But it seals his fate as being remembered as like this bigger than life hero. Yeah. And like, that, that's, that's a thematic thing about it. You know, father, I know that you are a man who uh, is a strong adherent to the truth uh, in, in all matters. But uh, this is a case where Cisco chooses to very deliberately propagandize this guy uh, specifically like o'brien is like hey what do you think about that you know captain or commander he was he was not the guy that the legend said and and then cisco is like i'm gonna tell people he was the guy the legend said so what did you think about that father yeah, i probably wouldn't have done that but no i i wondered about that because like propaganda does serve a purpose in a war effort and i you know i don't know if they were in a wartime thing but they did talk about how the the, the provisional government of Bajor is like, you know, could collapse at any time, just like it was in the first season. It's clearly volatile. And uh, he did give them, he did serve up a little bit of, um, you know, nationalistic mythology, um, <laughs> even while they're putting down the, you know, the nationalistic, the QAnon uh, of the, uh, of Bajor, uh, the circle. And, uh... This one other thing that we we skipped over that I just want to add is that I uh, think it was kind of darkly humorous when Quark is uh, gets hate crimed when they like brand that uh, thing on him. Oh right, uh, just like it because of his screaming. Uh, it's actually like kind of a. I did not realize until this season that the wailing. Well, I think it was invented here. I think this is the beginning the of it. There's uh, there's well. But you the, you um, hear Nog and Rom both do it in these later episodes we're about yeah, to talk yeah. about. I guess you're right. There is a very specific one that, that that's it's amazing later. But uh, yes, I guess I guess you're right. That was the the start of it all. <laughs> uh, and also the uh, that spider that's on the Bajoran moon, the uh, Plu- Plutaco or oh yeah yeah Pluku, Pluku. puppet. <laughs> yeah, I like <laughs> I like that. Just like they wouldn't do that today in, in any of the new shows, but I. I wish that they could show stuff like that. The other Star franchise would do it, though. They don't mind puppets. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> Let's move on to episode four of season two, where the station is evacuated again. Uh, strangely enough. This one uh, in a very, you know, in that, uh, I guess you're right. It's a very sort of contrived bottle episode way. Yes, uh, this is... Invasive procedures. The synopsis reads: A desperate trill tries to steal the Dax symbiont. Now, basically, we have uh, John Glover uh, shows up as a as a trill who was rejected from the uh, symbiosis commission, and now he's like, "Nope, I'm here to like get this trill." The uh, <laughs> the little team he he brings on board the station, they take over and they try to get the uh, doctor to perform the procedure. He actually does, and then. Cisco uh, turns on him. Cisco uh, shoots him and gets the symbiote back to save Jadzia. With a little bit of help from the um, one of his, one of his the guy's allies. 
Yes, but you get to see Cisco do like some cool like it's very like Kirk the way that he kind of uh he plays her where he he he's yeah. he's he's kind of like manip- manipulative and tricksy trying to get yeah, her to we, to turn on him. Before we get to it, I, I want to say I I I always like seeing uh, that actor John Glover aka Smallville's Lionel Luther. Yeah, he's in a lot of DC stuff. He, right. He's he Doctor uh, Woodrow in Batman and Robin, the beloved yep. uh, Batman movie. He is um, totally uh, that. That's a bonkers role, <laughs> as opposed to his kind of refined version of evil in Smallville. And he's in Shazam. He's in the Shazam movie. Oh, is he? He's not. He's not Savannah. No, but he's Savannah's father. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's 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 kind of always a good presence, and I you know what I thought was interesting about him here. Oh, and the Riddler. He did the Riddler on Betas. That's right. His voice is so distinct. Yeah. Um. He that's Batman the animated series for you people who don't know acronyms. <laughs> uh, but he um, uh, he's an unsure of himself guy in this. Well, he's both like he's clearly resolved to do what he's got to do, but early on in the episode, he's kind of an unusual villain in that he comes in. First of all, I like the whole storm ravaging the station. I like storms, and I don't care if it's a plasma storm or a hurricane. Uh, The idea of sort of battening down the hatches in like a fort sort of thing like they are, I think is just a neat setting. Yeah, it's just Um, weird that they evacuated, right? I kind of wish that they had just made this like a a continuation of episode three. I'm I'm sure like they didn't want it to become like a four-part story arc, but just before everyone's come back... That's when that's when uh, like John Glover attacks. That's when, like when he strikes. I guess because I think I, I don't like my, the way my mind works when most of these episodes are standalone is that the time is so nebulous in them that it almost doesn't quite matter where they slot in unless there's some big continuity thing in them. So you know it 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 didn't feel weird at all to me. You know I, I'm used to one episode just being a completely discrete entity from the others. It's or at least that's a lot of the kind of trek I like. Uh, now, Father, have you ever seen this old movie called Key Largo with uh, Humphrey Bogart? I've not. He's uh, he's, he's out in the – I forget exactly what the premise is, but he's a, he's an ex-GI who's out in the Florida Keys and staying at this hotel when most of the key is evacuated uh, because of a hurricane. Uh, and he and just a, a handful of other guests are still at the hotel for whatever reason they couldn't get the boat out or something. And it looks like – I think there's like a meeting between some mobsters that occurs there. And it, they, the mobsters take over the hotel, and there's this kind of this suspenseful rest of the movie as you wait to see is this XGI who's clearly kind of sworn off of violence a little bit, uh, kind of in that Western style. Is mm-hmm. he gonna, you know, kick some ass? It's but kind anyway, of a hostage situation, or not not necessarily like a hostage situation, but, it, but like, uh, well, like they in do. this case, in this episode, it's 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 they're just like prisoners. They're just being like. Right, right. They aren't trying to ransom him off or anything like that. Right. But yeah, it reminded me of that, and I feel like that had to have been at least partially an inspiration, even though it doesn't speak to the very specific story about the about Trill and uh, and symbionts. So John Glover's character, though, he's like, I'm sorry I'm doing this. He's like, I don't want to hurt anyone. And he's clearly very self-involved. He's kind of bullshit. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting to have a villain who's kind of apologetic in a way. Well, it made me think what temptation would I want enough that would make me be like the selfish where I'd be like, okay, yeah, like this young girl's going to die and I'm just going to ignore it. And I couldn't think of anything. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, I think he has to be, and father, you're a little into yourself sometimes, but, but I think he's a, he's a special level. 
it's also like I, I guess he like he views the you know having a uh, uh, a symbiote as ba- being like a superpower, you know. Yeah, to he's him, entitled he's not... to it. Yeah, there's um... been like this grave mistake. Like, like he probably thinks that the symbiote deserves to be joined with him. Probably thinks he's right. doing a favor to the symbiote. Yeah, he clearly just kind of shuts off the death. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. Still, do it. Uh, what does he have? Two Klingon mercenaries? Yeah, and then there's one like of them played by Tim Russ, who will go on to be Tuvok. <laughs> How did I miss that? I didn't I didn't catch that. I, I know you. I think you told me about it like a year or so back when I just first watched the yeah. episode. But and he was also I, one of the terrorists in Starship Mine who took over the Enterprise when Picard went all diehard. So so yeah. Tuvok likes to like uh, <laughs> take control trust, of, of ships or Tuvok. stations. There's a cool fight scene, speaking of that stuff, where um, they kind of do what I always kind of like at least people to to try if they can when they're in these captive situations, which is not to have some big plan, but just to when there's kind of a the bad guys that are co- controlling them are like kind of looking away for a second. Just take your shot. You know, somebody just grabs a gun. And so like Cisco and Kira are fighting with them. And I, and, and like Cisco's fighting a Klingon and Kira's fighting the, the prostitute that's uh, that uh, John Glover's character had rescued from her life on, the, I, I guess, a really pretty awful situation. And she outfights Kira. <laughs> I was thinking, like, man, she's had a rough really... life. It actually made me think this is why she's so devoted to him. If she had to like learn to fight that hard where she lived, then it was a bad situation. It's like some Tasha yeah. Yar level stuff. Yes, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but it was a cool fight scene, and like uh, Cisco uh, wails on that Klingon pretty good. <laughs> we get more Ferengi screaming with Quark. Right, that was a classic. He exaggerates it because he wants to, you know, they want to pull a scheme so that they can get out, and ultimately it does. They need and they up. need Odo out of sickbay. That's kind of cool. It kind of makes Odo seem like more of a badass when the bad guys are like, nope, like we're locking you up. First thing we first thing we do is lock up Odo, and then at the end when Odo's free and Kara's all confident and she's like, you know what, I'm not even worried. There's no way you're getting off of the station if Odo's like loose running around. There's cool character stuff, like I was saying here with. You get to see more of, of the Trill side of, of things and get to learn a little bit more about Dax. And that was fun to see when John Glover's character, Varad, when he becomes Varad Dax. And then he's like, oh, Benjamin, like, remember the bachelor party and all that stuff. And yeah. and, 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 you, and Cisco, Cisco plays to plays, it. Yeah, when, when he's like, oh, yeah, remember when we discovered the wormhole and try to, like, like stimulate, like, that guilt in them. And, you know, like... The climax of the episode, I thought like Cisco was willing to kill Dax to save Jadzia because she she will die. She needs that that worm installed back into her, or she right. will die Basically, for she's sure. She's got an hour once it's removed from her to live. An well, they they said like she might last longer because like she's like young and healthy. But oh right, uh, but but, 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 like, but yeah, the clock is ticking. So it's like the dramatic clock that I always talk about that TOS I, did well and TNG should have done better um but but yeah like when he when he, when he shoots him because he, he's like you know like stunning dax could have the 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 when it's freshly joined like that that could have hurt the the simulant and but he he's like he's willing to risk it he's being the hard-boiled hero when he does that right and because because the other option is this guy gets a win and she dies anyway yeah um you know, I, I liked Cisco in this episode. You talked about him doing the psychological warfare where he tries to tell the prostitute, hey, when he gets, uh, when he becomes um, Dax, he's not going to be the same person. And what I really liked is that she's smart enough to say, I know you're not going to talk me out of it. He and I already discussed it. 
He, I know he's going to be different, but he's going to be the same person, just more of more to him or whatever. But then when it actually does happen, she catches that it like it feels like his interest in her has dropped, like died away, and that when they're supposed to meet somewhere afterwards, she's like, I could tell he wasn't going to do it. Uh, and so finally, Cisco's long play con, you know, it's not something like, it's not like Kirk quite outwitting a robot. It's a long con, uh, does finally win the day. Well, shall we move on to episode five, Cardassians? Yes. Awful, awful title, by the way. <laughs> yeah. For, for like an episode that actually has some, some interesting depth to it, that is the most generic title. Well, when, but... when Ira takes over the writing in season three, they get more exciting episode titles uh much like tos and not like boring tng voyager episode titles like cardassians yeah yeah um so so yeah hit me father what's the what's the breakdown on what how it goes on in this one garrick and dr bashir investigate abandoned cardassian war orphans on bajor Uh, basically there's this uh cardassian orphan who's been left behind from the occupation he's about to be returned to his father in the cardassian union and they figure out, they're like, oh, Gold Ducat actually planted this orphan years ago just to sabotage his political enemy. Uh, wow, that's crazy. But Garrick and Bashir expose it, and at the end, the boy goes off to live with his dad. So, what do you think? You know, you know what's interesting is, like, I loved the ride in this episode. Um, uh, Garrick and Bashir as a team is great because... Um, Garrick is, like, always, like, three steps ahead of Bashir, and, like, Bashir ends up, like standing there like with his dick in the wind <laughs> all the time whenever Cisco is like wait uh he's like you want to get a runabout or you want to do this or that he's like why are why are you wanting to do this and he's like he's like well Garrick said that uh you know such and such and he's like he's like so you don't actually know uh and or you're just <laughs> doing what Garrick said and he just gets busted over and over by by Cisco on this so but it's pretty fun to watch he's a fun person to watch get played um I don't know how I felt about like kind of how it ended, you know, who the kids ends up with and, and all of that. But the but I for sure thought that the ride was was really interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm OK with the ending. Like I, it, it made sense to me, like for him to like go live with his, you know, biological dad. Like it, it, they do a good job, like showing like, oh, yeah, this guy is actually going to be like a decent dad. It's a little bit like that Star Trek nuance. Like not every Cardassian is terrible. Right. He was clearly, uh, and, and what's interesting is that there's there's sort of nuance on both sides here, where the Bajorans who had ended up, so this kid was like a war orphan left behind when the Cardassians pulled out, right? Yeah. And um, they, uh, his parents had been like broadly kind to him, but clearly had kind of made him hate Cardassians, and therefore that aspect of himself, you know, he kind of hated himself, but they never hurt him, they loved him uh, in their way. But they were also, you know, would probably, you know, didn't, would, maybe I guess didn't realize that in their bitterness towards the Cardassians, that they were effectively abusing him and wrecking his self-esteem. Um, but they are, you know, a lot of the time they are decent people and his biological father, also a good guy for the most part, um, at least insofar as his love for his son and his desire to do right by him. They suggest in this episode that Garrick, does he have a particular beef with Gold Ducat? They first bring that up here, and Bashir articulates that. He's like, I don't think he likes Ducat very much. When they're asking, like, well, why is Garrick helping us? Um, He's very mysterious, and 
I, I that's what I love about Garrick, and uh, we will learn like bits and pieces about it throughout, and they they will play out that Ducat uh, Garrick rivalry. Um, they never they never expose all the details, but we just get like these little tidbits here and there, and I, I I love some of them, but I I won't, I won't tell them to you because I'll just let let them hit you and they hit you, but they're they're cool. fun. Well, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that that does continue and it wasn't just like a one off that went nowhere at all. Yeah. Um. Uh, it, but I thought that like the, the kid did good. There's an interesting sequence with the O'Brien family that kind of fosters the kid while he's on DS9. <laughs> Racist O'Brien is like. Uh, you know, he throws around word words like Cardies and stuff at the yeah, top of a hat. But you have to keep in mind what they establish on the next generation about O'Brien and the Cardassians. Mm-hmm. When he says to, he tells a Cardassian, you know, after he had fought like this war against them and the Cardassians were so terrible with their their war crimes, he tells the Cardassian like, "I don't hate you because of who you are. I hate you because of what you turned me into." And right. It's sure. his his anger at them just is a little bit more of just like his guilt for feeling anger at them. When he's with the kid, he he definitely does his best. I feel like don't they sort of bond over <laughs> Keiko's like bad cooking or yeah bad the, the Cardassian at- soup? They didn't they didn't like the Cardassian food. <laughs> yeah, bad attempt at Cardassian because the little kid he doesn't want Cardassian stuff because he's been yeah he, he likes uh, Bajoran. He wants to eat Hasperit or some Bajoran food. You know what he wants to do is he wants to bite. Cardassians. That's what he <laughs> yeah. wants to physically eat them. That's what he tried to do that, with. That them. is a, a, a funny opening when when Garrick's like, "My, what a handsome boy you have here!" Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's something I thought was interesting. When I was looking it up, I found out that there's a book that follows what happened to Rugal uh, when he like in his yeah as he grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called uh, the the Never Ending Sacrifice. And I don't know how focused on him it is, but he's at least a supporting character, and I think you see him some years after the events of this. Yeah. That's, That's a that. name of an in-universe piece of Cardassian literature. Oh, interesting, huh? That that Garrick, I, I, well, Garrick I, I gives if I to might Bashir. I read something, but I could have sworn I saw that it was a novel. But maybe it might maybe, be. I'm, maybe I misread it. But yeah, I really liked this one. I thought it had like a lot of sort of uh, um, sort of nuance to it, and. Um, uh, also revealed the depths of Cardassian, you know, <laughs> manipulation that, yes, he would. Uh, what, the implication was that Gold Ducat had dressed as a woman. Am I correct? To Because they said it was a woman who had dropped off the baby. Well, I think it was one of Ducat's, like, His underlings. Days. I don't think. Okay, I wasn't sure how. how I much don't think the, the prefect of Terok Noor, like, dressed up in drag and, like, did that himself. Undercover. I wouldn't have thought so either, but they kind of, like, like, they made out it was such a particular plan of his. But yes, he, he, you know, that he would years and years earlier set up this political manipulation just to humiliate a guy who was now a political rival. Uh, that is some Machiavellian shit. And, yeah, it's uh, kind of I, a Romulan move. But the, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. One last thing I want to add is that, like, part of, part of the realism that I like is that, you know, things like there being, like, war orphans left behind and stuff, but, yeah. but also uh, the, the... The fact that, like, the Cardassians had such influence over Bajorans that, like, the orphanage was keeping records, like, Cardassian style. It's it's something that you see a lot where, like, with imperialism, like, uh, there's a lot of, like, British influence over how things are done in the Republic of Ireland or, like, in India or, you know, like, there's a lot of, like, French... Yeah, this kind of gross thing where you absorb your captors... 
style yeah. or their way of life. Like like French influence in Vietnam and, you know, like stuff sure. like that. For sure. Um, sure, let's talk about the next episode. So we'll move on to episode six of season two, Melora. Dr. Bashir ends up falling in love with a new officer when he develops a way for her to function in a high-gravity environment. Meanwhile, Quark receives a death threat from one of his former associates. So, um, not just to mainly focus on the A story, yeah, we get the, the character Ensign Melora, who is from a low-gravity world. Uh, she is meant to be kind of an uh, allegory for disabled people or people who have to use wheelchairs. And um, we have this uh, this cool romance, or I think it's cool, some people might not be into it, but between her and Bashir. Uh, this episode is actually written by Evan Somers, who was disabled himself in real life, used a wheelchair, and it was kind of in reaction to Next Generation to seeing, like, Worf uh, be so terrified of the thought of being disabled that he wants to commit suicide, and uh, it, it inspired this writer to tell a story of actual functional disabled person within star trek i read i read that backstory and i thought that was interesting i mean of course like Worf is coming from a klingon perspective in that uh, episode uh which you know is is gonna <laughs> we, 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 you know it's kind of a known thing that the klingons have some dodgy views on a lot of stuff so but yeah they're a little uh, backwards sometimes but uh you know i get that you know like the the message of that episode still seemed to ring through that you know, oh my gosh, it's a fate worse than death to, you know, lose the ability to move. And so, uh, so this was kind of a counterpoint. Unfortunately for me, it's the first sort of weak episode of this season. And I feel like it's kind of, it feels more dated to me. It feels like it kind of came from an era when even when you had someone who was a wheelchair user, it's, the story ha still had to be kind of about that. In the same way, it reminded me of how, like, the early black superheroes all had a chip on their shoulder. They were all called character. Black Panther or Black Lightning or, you know, Black whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, and, and, like, they all were, they all were pissed off at the man. And, you know, they, you know, race had to be first and foremost, not like their character. Just as, like, her, you know, wheelchair use is first and foremost kind of about this character she herself is supposed to is a strong character and i like what basically when things do fall away when she sees that bashir is not like condescending to her um which is nice growth you know like just it's good to see bashir being a little bit more than season one's a little bit just of a horn dog um and um that uh, once they do start just seeing each other and going to uh klingon uh uh, Klingon restaurants. I love that. Is... I love that restaurant. I yeah. love that you have to go there and like speak Klingon to get like the good gawk. And it reminds me of uh, the the company I work for is based in Northern Iowa, mm -hmm. and uh, I have like some coworkers who like when they would go up there, they would tell me like, oh, there's this really good Mexican food restaurant. It's like one of the best places to eat there. Mm -hmm. And I went there typically as a Texan. I would never eat Mex Mexican food outside of Texas or maybe Mexico. But that's it. You know, if I go north of the Red River, I'm not eating Mexican food. Because it's it's just by our standards, it's not very good. And I, but 
some people recommended this to me, and so I went there and I tried it, and it, it was it was without a doubt, unquestionably, the worst Mexican food I ever ate. What I didn't <laughs> realize is that my coworkers would go in there and speak Spanish. But because I uh, was a white boy who went in there and spoke English, I did not get the good Mexican food. Oh, I don't know how I feel about this place doing that. But yeah, you got you got gringoed out yes. of, of the good stuff. That's too bad. Uh, love, Bashir was like seemingly about to have that happen when uh, Melora jumps in and saves his ass. Right. Uh, there's there's some cool incidents in here, including her like zero G suspension, which I actually thought had. Pretty cool, pretty good special effects for the era as she and um, uh, um, Bashir uh, kind of move about in her headquarters in zero G. They um, have zero G sex, which would probably be pretty fun. I thought that was a neat idea. It sounds awkward. Uh, <laughs> every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? Or, or like oh, it'd same, be like a waterbed effect. Like spinning which, around like a pinball, bouncing yeah. off walls. So <laughs> pro- probably like cool in theory but not in practice but i don't know maybe so maybe you'd be drifting really lightly and then you just push off of the wall and just get back to what you were doing i don't know i don't want to get into detail uh but uh but yeah let's i'm gonna assume it was cool but uh i don't know like her defensiveness <clears throat> unfortunately it was not like an endearing character quality I can watch. I can see characters who are defensive about anything and still like them or find them compelling, but this one just—it somehow it felt a little trite to me. It felt a little dated, uh, a little bit almost more like it belonged in like a TOS era or or maybe TNG. I mean, I think that's very possible. I, I'd like to hear you know what people from like that community uh, think yeah, about it. I'm of, I'm of course yeah not speaking from a from a position of of, of deep knowledge. The original plan was to have a regular character on Deep Space Nine who was from a low gravity world, and uh, as the science officer. But I think that was just going to be too expensive of an effect, and uh, you know, whenever you'd want to right. to show her and like it was floating around, be like yeah, a permanent thing. Um, I know in like the Titans novels with with Riker and Troy on the Titan, mm-hmm. Melora is. Uh, I think she's the cellar cartography officer on that like ship, this. and has like a a low G stellar cartography room um but uh yeah i like i like that they kind of make her like like the hero of 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 the episode when she's able to stop the uh that guy caught um it it, it's one of those things that felt contrived but like as executed it looked pretty cool Uh, yeah we hadn't we hadn't seen them do like low g stuff in star trek before well they do that in star trek six i guess which had just come out shortly before this a couple uh, yeah, years before a, this, but like point. other than that, I guess it hadn't really been done. Yeah, um, that is true. To like kind of put it in the context of the exact year it was happening, where it would have been like maybe an especially kind of cool thing to see. Okay, we'll move on to episode seven of season two: Rules of Acquisition. Grand Nagus Zek assigns Quark to initiate negotiations with a planet in the Gamma Quadrant. But Quark's new associate is not what he seems. And we actually have Quark team up with a Ferengi named Pell, who is a woman disguised as a man in order to take place in capitalism and in, in, in the, the Ferengi alliance. <laughs> so she's she becomes a, a cross-dresser in, in disguise to, to escape the Ferengi misogyny. And they uh, go do some negotiations for the Nagus and the Gamma Quadrant. So it's a, it's a Ferengi episode, which some people hate, but I love. And I like this one. 
Uh, what uh, do you think of it? This one is like the uh, like a Ferengi answer to uh, one of those Shakespeare cross dress plays, like uh, Twelfth Night or something like that, <laughs> where it uh, it happens and people you know mismatched people fall in love and uh, there's a, kind of a comedy of errors. Uh, had obviously it had to be on their mind. I, another one of those ones. Uh, I enjoyed it too. Um, uh, I'm trying to think uh, if. Um, I think I felt like it maybe could have been a little bit more. And I think I sometimes feel that about the Ferengi episodes. They're almost a little too broad in the comedy for the, for the, the depth and sort of nuance that I like on DS nine. But, uh, but I also uh, enjoyed it. I liked their sort of, um, Oh, I don't know her winning over quark with all her, her deep knowledge of the rules of acquisition and stuff like that. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, I don't know. Maybe it was like uh, it was kind of sad uh, that uh, her her fate and is not a great one, right? Yeah, she just goes off on like an Endurian transport at the end. Which, by the way, they would not have said Endurian transport on Next Generation. So me being a big TOS fan, like I love that DS Nine can started started connecting. Yeah, the they, dots. they 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 can shout out TOS. Um, um you know, um this episode almost kind of got off onto a wrong foot with me. And, and there was something that bothered me during it, which was that Dax is real. Okay. With Quark's casual sort of sexism, which, you know, and that runs throughout Bashir does it. Sometimes it kind of runs throughout the series. Uh, it was still the nineties and it was just one of those things that they would kind of, America had like, you know, quite come to grips with still come to grips with, but had certainly less so. That uh, he like literally like puts his hand on her leg and she's just like quark, and later on she's, you know, Kira's like dressing down the Ferengi and she's talking about how like misogynistic and manipulative and like greedy they are and she's like yeah but once you get past that they're the most fun people to be around and I was like I don't know if this is the people you want to champion you know if this <laughs> is like that was a little bit it felt very regressive I didn't like the very... ongoing sexual harassment of Kara from the Nagus is what bothers me. Yeah, and she's also sort of forced to do the okay, enough of that, you know, just but still kind of grin and bear it and yet like as tough as Kira is, I think they would just lens it differently now. And I can almost mentally do that. Just imagine that they it just happened a little differently, you know, like like she would have like grabbed his hand and be like, "You do that again, this wrist is broken" or something like that. Mm. Um it's it's not too hard for me to just recognize that some some writing just wouldn't happen to fight the What same about way. Pell though? What do you think about Pell? Uh good character. I uh I liked her uh you know, I like that she was true to the Ferengi. Um she she's very sweet actually. There's a a scene that I, I, I think I read that this was sort of notable where Kira recognizes that she's in love with Quark. Or Dax. Dax does. Sorry, 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 yes, yes, Dax. And she's like, oh, good for you. Before Dax has realized that uh, Pell is a she. And uh, and so it was a casually very pro-queer sort of thing. I know that it was just for a few seconds before she realizes what's going on. But it's it's it was for, for the 90s. That's pretty notable. The first like, time in Star oh, Trek. It was the it was the first time anyone had, had done that in Star Trek. Yeah, I, I felt like it was. I wasn't 100 percent sure on that. Um. So yeah, I, I really like that, and I'm kind of proud that that they were able to to do that. 
Yeah. Um, also, the first Dominion mentioned in the franchise. I was about the to franchise. ask about that. I caught the name and I was like, have they done this before? Because in the next several episodes, they start dropping a lot of seeds, just little bits and pieces here and there. But it was very clear that they were laying the, the, the foundation. Yeah. So if you're paying attention, they're building up to something called the Dominion. They they do it in like the silly Ferengi episode with these silly aliens that the doci or dosi or like the yeah. the weird like clown face which is a, a terrible design i don't want to see these dudes ever again unless they show up in like lower decks i think they would they would fit in great there but they don't they don't need to be in anything else just because the you design is so ridiculous is that I, I i those things don't bother me i think i um all i think i need to see is like a slightly better written story with them and i would be fine with it and you know if they re-lensed them now if they were to show up on Picard it's or something a bit like too that. much it's kind of like hat on a hat type uh you, you know you got like the the orange <laughs> yeah. face you got like the blue dots you got like the barbarian armor you got it looks like they cobbled it together from what they had in the a nearby state yeah they really like their their v-neck shirts it's like i like, compare that to like the the ferengi design or like the cardassian design like it doesn't quite hold up as well father do we ever see pell or hear anything from her again uh no we we do not i would that's another one of those things like i always would like to see them pick up some threads here and there it doesn't have to be literally a continuation of the story but just to like if we saw her as a successful trader you know uh you know she's got the skills even just it was almost just in passing a ferengi that whose uh whose merchant ship they used to smuggle some stuff um you know, I would I would love to see that. And, I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't I say no to that. I think that'd be cool. There's just there's like hundreds of like these like cool little one appearance characters like that. So I, I don't totally. know if, if they can get to because get to all strong, of them. But she's a strong woman uh, character. Yeah. Uh, and and like uh, whose story in particular I'd like to know how it's sort of unfolded. That's she. I think I would place her higher on the list. But yes, there are hundreds of you know sort of little plot hooks that you know i wouldn't mind seeing continued but uh shall we shall we move on to uh necessary evil the, yes the one so i think this is the episode that you and i both are gonna like the most out of the 13 we talk about today an attempt on quark's life reopens a five-year murder investigation basically we get like this really cool film noir mystery with uh detective odo and it goes back to his first case when he first came onto the station years ago and first met gold ducat and quark and kira and uh we learn more about kira's you know it's more of that character stuff i said they have a lot of in season two we get to learn a little bit more about kira and more about her history you know uh this they, of course the station was known as tarak uh nor and that's on my t-shirt like... i'm wearing oh nice nice but but in this episode father it's tarak noir oh yeah Tarek noir yeah i like it it even opens with like the like like the rainy night and like the oh, the like, like the sexy dame. woman yeah the sexy she's, dame she's cutting a deal with squirk and they have that staccato dialogue like a 40s or 50s detective movie where both of them are real like kind of savvy to the manipulations you know and they both <laughs> kind of know what's going on and what's what little veiled things mean and there's this hints of their past together uh, it is a straight up nod to that, and I and a very good one, I think. Yeah, she really hires nice. him to to smuggle something, to pull a heist, and yeah. smuggle something. <laughs> Which, is, by the way, leads to a fantastic heist sequence. Yeah, him and his dumbass Bob, brother. 
I think, did I read correctly, Father, that this is kind of the first point where they really started indicating he's got a little bit more going on and certainly is like more technically skilled than we had been led to believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. When And Rom, he kind of like evolves in like these first two seasons, but around here is where we kind of solidify on like the, the Rom that we'll see throughout the rest of the show. Because yeah, Quark is like starting to give him orders about how to break into, you know, infiltrate this uh, and, and break into the door, break past the security. And Rom is like, oh, there's, there's a lot better ways to do that. And he ends up re- revealing like he's used it to in emergencies to like get into Quark's safe and stuff yeah. like that. And Quark <laughs> is freaking out. He's like, you traitor. And they're like in the middle of a heist. And he's like, I'll never work with you again. And all this stuff. Uh, because, uh, because Rom turns out is much more effective than he thinks. Although Rom is always like, you know, claiming probably truthfully that he never actually took anything. He's just kind of too doofy to, to have done it. Well, uh, uh, Quark also gets shot, and so we have, like, that, like, is is he gonna die? And, like, it's, like, a mystery, like, who shot Quark? And <laughs> it's funny that, like, Rom becomes, like, the prime suspect, and, but he also, yeah. like, he kind of wants his brother to die so he can inherit the bar. Right, once he, once uh, Odo, like, like, in questioning him, he's like, you're the main suspect, you stand to inherit the bar. And he's like, I do? And he's like, I do. <laughs> um... Yeah, no, it's... Uh, irony of ironies! <laughs> there is some great dialogue throughout this, um, and... Um, I love when he screams when Quark lives. <laughs> yes. When There's, Odo's uh, like, congratulations, you saved your brother's life. And then, like, he's, like, screaming to see, like, his brother alive. Yeah, Quark, uh, I, I think, like, the smile that Quark has, it's not that, like, he's he's happy that he's alive. I think it's, like, happy that he still gets to, like, own his bar. Like, he, I think, like, his greed is what, like, made him, like, hang on to life and, like, pull himself back. <laughs> because Odo, actually, he, he narrates this. He, he says he's, like, been asked by this, you know, Cisco to, to keep a log and he doesn't want to do it. And he kind of gripes about all the human bureaucracy and how it would, like, strangle things if they, you know, uh uh what if i don't know if it wasn't digital or something like that yeah he but, doesn't like the log entry i i, I love not, i love that uh subversion it, of the star trek it, trope of the log yeah, entry. yeah he like uh sneers at it yeah but it does lead him to um uh to, to be able to do this noir type narration exactly what he says the ferengi held onto his life or holds onto his life like it's gold pressed latinum <laughs> <laughs> so there's some fun noir dialogue you know like adapted for ds9 in it what about the Kira uh, stuff? So this is the heart of the episode uh, that uh, the re- the reveals that um, you know you know flashing back to Tarek Noor and and like oh this is a uh, to me it looks like a right wing paradise father because there's gates everywhere uh, there's guns it's an armed populace <laughs> um, and uh, and it's horrible uh, it's uh, underpaid workers yeah and the what we see is that among the suspects that show up is a young Kira Norris who uh, tells tells a story that like seems plausible and is actually a partial truth, but uh, is part of some wheels within wheels. As uh, oh, by the way, it was great seeing Odo meet her for the first time and Quark for the first time. And serving alongside Gold, I guess meeting Gold Ducat for the first time. So like, well, they had met before when he, when he saw the Cardassian neck trick, I guess. Uh, right, I guess for we the viewer. Um, but 
yeah, uh, this is their first a, formal meeting, I guess. A lot of firsts for uh, for Odo in that one, but their ability, like uh, this is this is one that's about uh, Kira's um, sabotage and her 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 kind of wet work stuff for the uh, for uh, for the Bajoran resistance. You know, she was uh, she what did she lied and said she was. Uh, what did she initially tell Odo? That she was the one doing the sabotage, and that's why. Right, but it was like that's why she couldn't kill. Right. right, and that's why she couldn't have been the one to kill the shop owner. Right, but in fact, she was there to what get from the shop owner the names he kept because yeah. he was running a uh, he was uh, of uh, Bajoran. Um, uh, what, what do you call him? Collaborator. Collaborators. Uh, yeah, that. Um, it's a neat plot to the episode too. I like the mystery of it all and, and the slow reveals of everything, uh, because you know Odo starts out in this very justice is black and white, and by the end he has to get to that noir place where everything is shades of gray, yeah. um, and he has to to the point where he will cover for someone. That's the biggest thing. It's a huge moral compromise for this you know paladin type character. I was so in the uh, yeah. mood for this episode because on St. Patty's Day, I just showed Antonia the Liam Neeson movie, Michael Collins. Yeah, yeah. You, Which, I remember you saying that that was a really good flick. Yeah, and it has a lot of like, uh, you know, like the IRA, you know, running around like shooting people working for the uh, the, the oppressive imperialistic British government. Mm-hmm. And so like I, I was I was down for uh, for Kira to, to do some of that here. Now, she did reveal that she didn't want to necessarily kill him right it, it kind of came about right yeah she's not like a like a murderous psychopath but i yeah. mean like at, at the end of the day it's like okay you collaborate with fascism and uh yeah. you know like if you're gonna you're gonna cause problem for us in the resistance like i i gotta i gotta take care of this problem yep and, if you uh, lay down with dogs you're gonna get fleas and uh and odo um who's you know at this part tried to be the impartial constable uh, realizes he has to kind of cover for her. He does uh, cover for her when Gul Dukat does uh, uh, checks in on her. Um, anyway, it's it's a, it's a great mystery. It's I love the pacing on it, intercut between the present and the past. There's funny stuff with Quirk and Rom, and then there's a heartbreaker of an ending when um, you know Odo finds out the truth you know, five years after the fact about what, you know, that Kira had lied to him and they had become these really pretty tight friends in between that interim. And at least at the time, there's a suggestion that it's going to always have a kind of a pall on their friendship. You know, it's going to cloud things. And that's how the episode ends, which is, you know, 100% the, the tone and style of noir movies. But I, I think that, he, I think he forgives her pretty quick. Cause he, he does, he I does mean, say that line. Like it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to like. Right. It's ruined things the ends on the kind of pregnant pause. Like it wants it to like hang and, and have some weight and they, their faces look unsure. But yes, I think because we saw the decisions he made earlier in the episode, it seems clear that, ultimately this is a guy who's got her back and and yeah. i think that that's that's at the core of of, of who they are uh, and, so, and yeah it was the show does not, a good job of questioning is odo a good person like he he's you know got skeletons in his claw like he's like yeah he did like work for the cardassians and I, I like that it's willing to like ask those ask those questions about odo yep uh it was uh 
I don't know if I'd say it's the best episode to date, but it would be in my top three, no doubt. Okay, well, let's go to the one that I think is the worst. <laughs> episode nine. Proto matter, Father. How can it be the worst? <laughs> uh, th- this episode is called uh, Second Sight. Cisco falls in love with a woman visiting the station, but she is not what she appears. Yeah, basically this uh, this crazy scientist dude, uh, sciatic. Uh, comes to the station. He's he's the famous terraformer. He's about to uh, restore. He's about to resurrect a, a dead star, and he has uh, this uh, this wife with him. And all of a sudden, Cisco starts seeing a woman who looks like the wife who he falls in love with. And it turns out it's all some weird psychoprojective telepathic illusion type of stuff and nonsense. And uh, at the end of it the day, it's so weird that when Bashir talk, when they ask him what happened, Bashir is like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. It's just, it's just weird. The episode kind of ends on a weird note. Um, I, this is one of my least favorite DS nine episodes. I, I agree. Uh, I actually, I absolutely agree. And I, I, so I don't have a lot to say about it. I actually thought that it started out from a, an interesting place that could have been really interesting. It's the anniversary of the death of Cisco's yeah. wife. Four and, years. And he's, he's you know, by chance, it, you know, weirdly sees a woman who he hits it off with in conversation. It could have been, you know, this interesting story about recovering from loss and how people process grief. And, you know, I really I actually like the part where Jake told him it's okay with me if you want to, like, date somebody again. And, uh, and there's some, some, some little moments in there that I like, but overall, aside from the fact that like the storyline is kind of the, the sci-fi elements of it are real, like what? Uh, (laughs) I also think that Trek is a little too enamored of its like quirky asshole geniuses, the kind of blowhard egotistical geniuses. <laughs> I liked Sciatic. I kind of had fun with him. And I was more interested with his stuff than I was with like the Cisco and uh, Finna stuff. I just like, apparently this guy has scared off nine wives previously. <laughs> he knows he's a, he knows he's a blowhard and, but he still gets this kind of sacrificial ending and, and Cisco is smiling like, what a good man. He oh, he goes out like a boss. <laughs> and he, yeah, and he's uh, talking about like how he wrote, asshole. he wrote his autobiography. Like no one else could do it justice, but uh, they're all uh, groaning while he's constantly telling <laughs> stories about himself. Uh, they do it, play it, it looks fun. That see some like, you know, this, this is a recurring thing as far back as like, whether it's the, uh, cult of personality that Khan has or any of a number of like kind of genius scientists on next generation, who are also eccentric and jerky. Um, there's, there's like some people who like kind of are enjoying uh, uh, Sayatek, uh, if that's how you say his name. Sayatek, I think. And some people who are just like rolling their eyes every time, uh, which is kind of how those kind of egotistical chatterbox people are in the real world. So, I mean, I guess it's accurate. I just think that Trek is a little hero worshipy about brilliant asshole well i think it's very self-aware of it right here i guess <laughs> i want them to be meaner to them instead they're like oh it's just like a wacky uncle and i'm like ah he may actually be a prick he may have ruined those nine women's lives or been like a really miserable part of it by the end and i'm like i don't know that he needs to get uh lionized just because he's a good scientist and maybe an ass person 
I, I don't think he bothered me like that. But, um, I, <laughs> I I hate him. I liked I liked a lot of his dialogue. I like when he was like, uh, "Be sure to say that I sacrificed myself on the altar of of science." And then when he's like, "Let there be li-, like he's God," like he he was like thinks he's God at the end. That's like his last thought before he dies. Um, the, the, the Klingon the Klingon poetry. It's weird that they make a reference to Kang, the fall of Kang. Because in oh, a couple right. episodes we meet Kang, so I guess there's a, there's an, another Kang. There's like another Kang who fell. Yeah, so that makes I, it sound uh, like he dies. Uh, yeah, that that's that that I'm, I guess that was probably a right hand not talking to the left thing. Sure, the yeah. Original writers of this might well have thought that they were writing about Kang from TOS, and then they pretty much had to quick retcon. Nope, another Kang. <laughs> but you know that's the nature of uh, serial fiction with all its uh, different writers being handed off to. And I like anyway, seeing the yeah. Nebula class, the, the, that USS Prometheus ship. Yeah, I like I, I like getting on some Starfleet sets and off the Cardassian station. Honestly, I liked the uh, even though it was just a throwaway line. I did actually like that they mentioned proto matter. It sounds like they figured out how to use it better. Um. So uh. So it was that was a nice little nod to uh, some old TOS movie stuff. But I I gotta say that I I hate. Any of like the romance stuff between Finna and Cisco, I don't, I, I, I don't see like any reason like why they're into each other. Other, they're like, oh hey, like you're good looking, and like we're both just standing here alone. Let's like each hey, other. You and- know what? That's enough to get the ball rolling. <laughs> but when I realized that like she had like kind of was asking questions of him, but anytime he asked something about her, she would kind of d- d- defer away from it. And and I was like, they haven't really had a good conversation. It is kind of just like she's there and she's pretty yeah there's no substance Um, to it yeah and and i feel like a a deeper episode would have had something with some more substance to it and i hate her her design i hate the like double vulcan ear it's like a vulcan ear but with like two (laughs) points instead of one it's just like ah that's dumb and i'm glad we never see it again yeah i um i think that's all my thoughts are on it. it i felt like it's the kind of thing that with with notably better writing could have been something i think they would have had to have it uh, pretty heavily overhauled do you want to move on to the next one, or do you have more yeah, on the second site? Let's hit up Sanctuary. Okay, so here we go. Sanctuary, episode 10. A group of refugees come through the wormhole in search of Quintana, their fabled homeworld. You know, this is basically a society that's uh, matriarchal. The women are in control. Uh, that's that's why my girlfriend Antonia, like, loves this episode. She gets a kick out of that. <laughs> and, and but it's like this 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 refugee allegory and and uh something that, that yeah it does feel like a little bit relevant uh today and in, in in recent years that's become a, a more topical thing than probably back in the 90s when this was written but but you know historically has been around for a long time what do you think of this one uh mixed bag i thought the concepts were good but like i didn't love the depiction of the people who are you know clearly meant to be like i would say like sort of an analog to sort of a more rural like maybe uneducated group they're a little bit wild running around the station they have kind of what i thought were sort of weird makeup that had like this sort of like that mottled skin effect it looked like their skin was all flaking they're kind of gross because the, the, they have some weird part crazy of it. hair that looked like it was just sometimes straps of leather hide on at least one of them <laughs> yeah speaking um, of like not great alien designs come on michael westmore it, you're almost there <laughs> I think it got off on a slightly bad foot with me because they had sort of weak design. You know, they gave him just kind of crazy hair and stuff. And then there's like an initial language barrier because the the translator can't just process their language for whatever reason. And I was like, oh, this is going to be some kind of Darmok type thing about language maybe. 
but then like, you know, five or 10 minutes later, it just kind of kicks in and it gets it. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it was meant to just indicate, you know, in an allegorical way, the difficulty of, you know, like when there is a language barrier with immigrants and how that kind of creates an initial bit of chaos, like they have trouble moving them through the station because they're curious and they want to check everything out. And, and, you know, it feels it's aggravating to their handlers from DS9 because they can't communicate <laughs> with them. I get the I, I got the I, the idea behind it. I just thought it was like the execution was a little bit weak. Uh, and I guess that would sort of go for most of the episode. Um, I, I did. Um, to me, the most potent part part of it was near the end. They, they are, of course, are looking for a sort of fabled homeland that's, you know, kind of a prophetic kind of mystical thing. And they decide that they think uh, Bajor fits it, that they're, they're right. right in orbit of it. And um, so so telling them no when they actually seem like they're, you know, they're farmers, they think that they can handle the a, a section of uh, Bajor where they would be put. And the Bajorans are like, we just don't have the resources. We're barely scraping by on our own. And they're like, the truth of the matter is you – you would run into hardships and we will feel compelled to try and help you because that's who we are and we can't afford to do that. And I was like, that did sort of clarify at least I think the best good faith arguments against you sort of, I guess, you know, immigration when you, you know, when you feel like you're struggling just to keep your own head above water, uh, at least, you know, like what you want to be the argument. Um, maybe it's not, I don't think there's any suggestion that the Bajorans are saying this just um, in any mean-spirited way. Father, didn't you feel that they were being as honorable as they could? Yes. And I, I think their concern was they didn't think that, like, the southern continent was salvageable. But these right. people were like, well, we're such good farmers, let us try. I read it, that the original premise of the episode, the original script, was going to have it so that because they were such badass, like, botanists and stuff, that they were going to be allowed to settle there. And, and I think that would have uh, been cool. But I also, I kind of like that, you know, the, the episodes, like, it, it, it doesn't always work out. Like, every now and then, like, you 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 take a loss. Right. And it's it's not like, it's not like they were just sent on their way. Um, they actually did find another planet for them. It's just that they felt that um, kind of this one fulfilled also their sort of prophecy as well. Uh, I thought it was kind of, you know, uh, they, they talked about Quintana throughout and it takes on this mythic significance. And so later when, <clears throat> like, uh, I, I think it's Kira who asked to say, sorry, you're kind of just not welcome here. You know, we can't take you in. We just can't. And the lady says, uh, hey, you were right about one thing. You're not Quintana. And I was like, that's it kind of comes off as rightfully, I guess, harsh. Like, mm. man, we thought you guys were the myth and the legend. I guess you weren't. Uh, and it, it has some weight by the end of the show. I like the chemistry between, uh, I think her name is Hanik, the main Sakrian lady. I like but the stuff we see between her and Kira. And She was a unplanned leader. She was like someone who was just taking charge. Yeah. And it was just like, it looks like you're running the show. And the language miscommunication stuff. Like, I, I really enjoy the, the joke about how... Kira thought she liked that dress, and she was like, "No, I was saying it was like the ugliest thing ever." And then Kira's like, "Oh yeah, I thought it was terrible too." Like, but they kind of like <laughs> yeah. bond over that, and then yeah, makes it, it's a... it makes it sadder when things don't work out at the end. Right. It sounds seems like Kira's kind of found a friend, and um, that they sort of bonded under duress, and then they <laughs> sort of part on kind of unpleasant terms. 
it was I think because the episode ended on a, I think a dramatic high, I um, I warmed to it more by the end. But something you know I think the getting there was just okay for me. It felt like a sort of somewhat middle of the road episode. Oh, and we um, we also had the live music in Quarks where the guy is actually playing like the DS Nine theme song. I wondered about that because at first I thought it was like it definitely was, and then I was like, well, wait, maybe it's not. Uh, was was it the straight it, up? It, it's a little bit of a different arrangement, but just like slightly I, jazzed up. Yeah, I, so that's they do that in Lower Decks too, where Boimler's humming the TNG theme, which I don't, <laughs> I think that's fine if like these these pieces of music like exist somehow like in universe also. I know that bothers you, but I think it's okay. It bothers me in the most minor of ways. Like I don't think I'd really I, like if you were asking me like my issue, any issues I had with this episode. That wouldn't even chart. Yeah. Well, you, you uh, but, didn't bring it up. I did. No. So, <laughs> uh, I did notice, though, I was like, that guy looks familiar. And I looked him up and he's like, oh, he's from the Trouble with Triples episode. Uh, uh, the the other uh, cool guest star in here is uh, Andrew Koenig, uh, Walter Koenig's son, who plays the oh, uh, Korean. One, one of the kids? Yeah. And he was in, um, is it Growing Pains? Where he's like that kid Boner. What? Like really? his nickname? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was um, like uh, his doofus friend. Unfortunately, he committed suicide in 2010, I believe. Huh. Um, and, you know, like, I... If you look at, like, a picture of, like, Walter Koenig from, like, 2009, and, like, a picture of him from, like, 2011, it, like... He, like, aged, like, 20 years, like, after oh, his son man. died. That's that's awful. I, I was not aware of that. Um, but, yeah, that's... Uh, that's super, super, super horrible. Um, you know what I was thinking about this, Fathery, as I was watching the episode, was that I almost kind of wanted this to be one of those things that unfolded not as a singular episode, because as we are, have been maybe acutely aware of in the last several years, uh, of, like, the immigration crisis, uh, a politicized, uh, event that, uh, is um, quite possibly not uh, the danger it's, it has been made out to be, uh, but, uh, you know, is something that we certainly as a country cannot come to an agreement on. Uh, and, and it's been such a long-running thing now. And, of course, it's always, you know, when especially in, in countries that have um, civil strife and uh, that, that there's, you know, always refugee crises uh, going on everywhere in the world. I, I think it would have been cooler as a subplot that ran through a whole season. Yeah. And maybe they will do some more stuff with that. I know there's war stuff coming. Um, but uh, but I, I think it is a little difficult to do it in kind of one episode. Well, but it's a solid take on it. it and I don't think it, it applies very well to like a real world representation at this point. Because so much of the – so much like the destabilization that happens is because of uh, – because of – of our country here in the United States, you know, like a drug war in Latin America has created like this, this huge refugee crisis or our uh, conflicts in the Middle East that are primarily instruments of transferring wealth from taxpayers to uh, defense contractors uh, is, is, desta- is destabilizing huge chunks of the, well, I'm just saying like, like Bajor is not like creating these refugees. So I, I think it like, it doesn't really, it doesn't really translate from like an American perspective. This doesn't really translate. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. Although I also think there's a universality to, um, 
to, to, to just dealing with refugees, you know, another language, uh, you know, and another culture. And, you know, there's um, I, I think they did dramatize that in an interesting way, as you see some, especially some of the younger ones who are kind of a little bit more uh, they're they're a little feistier about it, don't they? Don't, isn't you, there a fight? Make no, yeah, they make Nog do the Ferengi screeching. <laughs> right. The, 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 um, Uncle Quark has to come and protect them, and then Nog's just like like this like like scared animal like hiding behind its parent or something like hissing at them. <laughs> it cracks me up. Yeah, uh, but broadly, those are all things that you people do have to deal with, like in a refugee situation. Um, it's just that yeah, you're right. They can't do these sort of nuance of like long the, the you know long term reasons for why the crisis occurred in which the you know uh theoretically the country taking in the refugees is complicit in them um but in such a way that people might not really see it or choose to not see it and and iris Stephen bear often comments on how the ferengi were written to be like the modern day humans so you can have like quark be like the like shitty like modern day guy they're like ah oh, we're like these dirty people gonna get out of here they're they're you know they're hurting my business i'm ready for them to go like their yeah. problems ain't my problems they need to get <laughs> um all right, Father. Let's jump on to Chris Sarandon's episode. Yes, uh, I, I figured I figured you would enjoy his his guest appearance here in the episode yeah. Rivals. Uh, Quark feels threatened when a con artist arrives on the station and opens up a competing bar. Meanwhile, Chief O'Brien is determined to beat Doctor Bashir at racquetball. I I really enjoy the uh, the A story and the B story here. I think they tie together well. And yeah, we have a, an Elurian like Guinan. From from TNG, an yep. Alorian guest star. So like what Guinan do you think of this? Soren, um, we have now of the three Alorians we've seen, two of them have been assholes. <laughs> so uh, what does That's that say? Great. Guinan was a lucky thing. The race of listeners, I actually kind of like that notion that the race of listeners might be instead of like you know what we were originally led to believe in this race of thoughtful therapists essentially, but rather a race of con men and uh, manipulators. Well, the original plan was for him to become a recurring character and a, a recurring rival to Quark, but this is his only episode. They didn't follow through on that. And I think that's probably okay. I think it was a good one-off episode, and I enjoyed it, but it was also, you know, pretty lightweight. Both A and B plots are pretty lightweight because essentially there's a uh, rival casinos, roughly, um, and then uh, a racquetball rivals. Yes. This is not high stakes, only... Later on, are there minor issues with the station caused by the probability distortion stuff? But it's good but character then, stuff for, for Miles and Julian, and we, we build up that relationship. Yeah. Right, that's that's absolutely true. Um, uh, but I do want to quick start by mentioning Chris Sarandon, who is always great at being sort of sleazy villains. He's probably best known as Prince Humperdinck from uh, uh, The Princess Bride, but he was also the vampire in Fright Night. Yeah, been been a ton of other stuff. We're both we're both big fans of that movie. I think. Yeah, he's great. He's great at being smarmy, and he actually isn't that full on smarm in this. Uh, <laughs> but he is he's sleazy, um, and uh, yeah, he ends up with this prisoner's weird device, which in a somewhat clever way, I think they don't bother to really explain what people are even quite doing with the game, why it's so alluring to them. But uh, yeah, it's some kind of little uh, 
bop it kind of game. Yeah, I kind of have to squint and not dwell on that stuff too hard because I think like the game and just like the probability device is like, yeah, this stuff, I don't know. It probably should be like explained a little bit better, but I don't know if there's a way to explain it that would be satisfying. We don't know why this guy would, um, the the, the alien who he got it from in prison uh, would have such a really potent device you know, it probably would have done to have that as a reveal during the course of it. It would have been kind of cool. You know, what if, what if it, Father, what if it had a chip from the Guardian of Forever, some stone chipped off of that and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> essentially hacked? I think that'd be kind of cool. Sure, um, yeah. There's ways to explain it, but they don't, they don't. Mess. But they're it's, a little it's bit sad. On... That dude who who's like, he just wants to die now. He's like cursed. It's like like a cursed monkey paw or something. Like he just wants to get rid of it. And he's like, yeah. oh, I finally win. And then he he dies. <laughs> um, and and yeah, like I actually, I'm trying to think. It did it influence like all of all events? Yeah, that basically everything sort of worked in the favor of Chris Sarandon. But like later on in the episode, it starts to sort of fail. Like all he all he, he you know, people win at his casino games all at once, and he has to uh, pay up. So did it did it? And clearly, it didn't always work for its original owner. So do we quite understand what the process is by which it works? Not really. It seems vague. Like it definitely luck was on his side at first. He was winning all of Quark's customers, and just as and and, and we ultimately see it transfer to the game where uh o'brien is like you know cannot miss a shot the ball is always in his favor um but yeah it is it is one of those where i'm like oh they didn't really stake out their rules for it too well but it's 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 kind of fun to watch the rivalry i loved actually when he hires on rom and (laughs) uh what do you call it he says he'll like i'll come back to work for you quark for like twice the to pay or something like that's that that's such a beautiful shot by the way that moment because we, we we start with like it's all one shot we start with like cisco and quark uh, uh-huh. uh on the top deck of the station right outside of quark's bar take the lift down to the bottom deck right outside oh, of quark's yeah. bar i did notice and, that and then we see rom you know walk out go across the corridor to club martis i just love it because we get a great look at this this fantastic set which i this is like a crazy thing to say but i always say like if the doctor from Doctor Who showed up in the TARDIS and offered me, hey, father, I can take you anywhere in space and time. Where would you want to go? The first place I would want to go would be to the 1990s of the Paramount Studios. And I would just like want to walk around on the Deep Space Nine promenade. I would want to like go walk around on these sets. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if it's sad. It seems pretty cool to me. <laughs> I, uh, you, you know, it's first stop, uh, baby. If I- out that there were actual space stations and stuff out there i'd maybe put that give them a higher rating but until we uh, know about some cool alien civilizations then yeah who am i to say that that's not a great place to go <laughs> but, but when they when when rom makes that demand quark is like a bidding war over you <laughs> he's just so he's so disgusted at it yeah. uh, uh that it was great um he shaves the latinum no i don't well not much. <laughs> I love um, all that stuff. It's to be sleazy with his think of the children scam. Um, there's some fun stuff there. The poison elixir he tries to give Bashir. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then um, he also there was a cool bit with Cisco where uh, he's uh, you know when he's uh, Quark is like potentially about to go out of business and he's talking. And he's like, you need to interfere, and he's like, you begged me to stay when I first when you first came on board. And Cisco's like, I didn't beg. I blackmailed you. 
<laughs> just I liked him putting it in such concrete terms. Uh, I thought that was great. Yeah. Um, Quark also, always like reframes things to like sound the most convenient for him. When he's when he's like, I had a contract, and like Cisco's like, No, like you bribed the Cardassians before we got here. Like that's not a oh, contract. Yeah, I actually thought that that was a good idea. They're like the Federation does not recognize that as a contract. <laughs> uh, there's a small bit in here that I like where so you know the the B plot is that uh, uh, O'Brien, who was like a solid just amateur racquetball thing, goes up against Bashir who's, like, was actually, like, competitive professionally or, like, semi-professionally. Yeah, he's captain and, of the team at med school. And he wrecks O'Brien to the point where he's, like, telling people... O'Brien, because of his pride, won't back down. And he's like, another round, another round. And then later on, Bashir is telling... Uh, I don't know who it was. Dax, maybe? Whoever it was. He's like, oh, my God, he was just red-faced, and I thought he was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> and So yeah. he's trying to, like, kind of, like... He tries to, like, throw some games, and O'Brien catches it and o'brien's pride is hurt but there was a small bit that came out of that that beyond just a little bit of kind of fun interplay and their slow bonding that i liked which was that uh keiko when he's going to when 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 the big competition happens that quark sets up keiko who we do see him bickering with quite a bit is like hey kick his butt tonight and she's like no matter what we're gonna celebrate and i'm like oh they're gonna they're gonna get it on they're gonna have some drinks and get it on <laughs> and uh and i was just happy to see him and keiko having a keiko a, gets too much night. hate like i don't I, I don't get the keiko hate at all like I, I i know sometimes like she's written to kind of be like the annoying nagging wife but there's there's a lot of likable stuff with her too and i, I think people give her uh people give they her a hard a time a bit of the kind of cheap humor like keiko's food is no good and stuff like that uh, more than more than once and I think the writers, you know, the, 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 there is a weight of, I think, actually just some cliched and tropey writing on her. I think sometimes the writers did a disservice to her. But as to actually what she does, whether it's running the school, taking in Rugal in the episode we just talked about, um, encouraging Chief to kick some ass here, she's actually doing a lot more, like, good stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, I, Keiko definitely has gotten a raw deal. Well, uh, you ready to go on to the next episode? I am. I am. So we have episode 12 up next, titled The Alternate. Uh, the Bajoran scientist who used to be Odo's teacher arrives with evidence of others of Odo's kind. Uh, I call this one the one where Odo's daddy comes to visit. And we, we get to meet uh, the, the guy who... The scientist who uh, Odo has, like, some major daddy issues with, uh, Dr. Mora, who they actually originally wanted Renee to play this guy, too, and, and be like, oh, yeah, like, Odo based his look on the guy who discovered him, or the guy who, I'm like, glad, worked with him. I'm glad they did. I'm glad they did. Uh, they did that with Data. Um, it would have been, been, like, a different thing here. It's like the shapeshifters trying to take the shape and... But, I, I mean, I get it. I, I, I guess it could have worked. That's why they gave I, him the same hairstyle, though, where he has, like, his hair slicked back like Odo. It's like, this is yeah, where he I got it from. Yeah, I assume that Odo just did that as a simple hairstyle that was easy to sort of attempt to mimic. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking about how Odo falls within that sort of Trek outsider status, like Spock and Data. He's a variant on the same kind of ideas. And that all of those guys have, um, whenever they're lensed through parents, it's always through the father. Uh, not that we never saw uh, Spock's mom but that primarily we were interested in his relationship with Sarek, Data to Dr. Soong, and Odo to Dr. Mora. And they're all sort of troubled relationships. I, that it definitely speaks to an interesting theme in 
in Star Trek about fathers and sons and sort of their difficult reconciliations at times. I, I thought, I thought, I don't know, I don't know if they they they, they might need to shake that one up a little bit. Um, but um, but it is interesting, and I thought this guy, the actor in the role as Doctor Moore, did a good job of portraying somebody who was conflicted. I thought he's kind of awful later on in something he does. But before we get to that, I did want to jump to the beginning when we find out that Ferengi uh, sell their uh, pieces of their dead <laughs> as art- yes. like artifacts. Uh, and Odo busts, um, <laughs> he busts Quark for selling uh, pieces of a person who's not actually even yeah. dead. It's just Leg. some other body. But he can get like a, presumably a better price for this particular guy. And, and, and Quark's like, uh, he's got the Ferengi certificate of dismemberment <laughs> or something like that. Uh, anyway, I was laughing at it. It was such a Ferengi thing to do. It seems like ultimate capitalism. Yeah, it's like literally carving up the bodies for sale too. Um, I thought it was like a great, ridiculous, but great, uh, Ferengi idea. They, they have a continuity goof in here. Well, I guess it wasn't a goof in this episode, but. They really, it? really suggest that, like, Cisco's dad is dead, where he says, he talks about, like, yeah, like, when my father became sick, and in the end, there is nothing I could do to help him. Uh, but, you know, we meet Cisco's dad in, like, two episodes. So it's like, <laughs> this what is are another, you talking about? This is the same, uh... Or not, not two episodes, uh, uh, two seasons. We, we meet him in season four. Okay. Yeah, this is the same reporting going on about uh, Kang's death, yeah. uh, I guess. Um... But I don't, I don't, I don't really enjoy this episode uh, for whatever reason. I guess, I guess because after like you, you know the the mystery to it, it doesn't quite hold up as well. Uh, with Odo as the monster all along, and it's just kind of like his his emo daddy issues, and then it's like resolved so quickly. Um, yeah, there, there there is some truth to that. Uh, I thought there were some strong moments, and um, the kind of uh, awkward there family are. stuff early on, where Quark. Clearly, I think needling, both needling Odo and maybe being a little sincere is like extolling his virtues as a constable to Dr. Mora. And Odo is like, fuck, you know, he's pissed off as yeah. usual. I love how the tables and, turn when Dr. Mora shows up and then like, like all of a sudden like quirks in control of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. He's well, he's like, he's like embarrassing him, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in front of his parent and then. Uh, who, by the way, they like uh, Odo. It's like McCoy and Spock. Like, oh, he had a teddy bear, you know, in, oh, in Journey right, to Babel. Exactly. And later on, even um, I noticed that um, uh, Mora does the same thing, where he was, um, he's kind of talking about um, uh, what do you call it the uh, uh, the the achievements or, or whatever. He's like, uh, like, oh, I guess the early days, and he's actually talking over Odo to Dax. They're both talking to Dax, I think, right? And he's kind of talking over him. Odo will start to talk, and then he'll continue it. Because this guy is another one of those Starfleet guys with a bit of an ego. <laughs> who's a little... He's a Bajoran guy. He's not a Starfleet guy. Oh, he, uh, he's, he's, he's one of their genius scientist guys, though. Um, and and he's a, he's a little full of himself, and he talks over it, and Odo's like, you know, groaning because Dad won't stop telling the story about him. The scene that I thought was the like heartbreaking was the one where he like reduces Odo to like almost tears. Yes, uh, I like that. He is like, and I was like, this is a shit thing to do though. That's some shit emotional manipulation, I think. Where he's like, I want he, he wants his son back in a way, and he scares him 
it, it, un, unfairly about what's going to happen. He's like, they're going to dissect you, Odo. They're going to put you in a zoo. And Odo goes from being this composed guy that he always is to, uh, you know, he's like profusely sweating or, you know, he's just glistening and uh, and terrified. And it's uh, it's super sad to see. I thought uh, Rene, however you say it, Abergenois, uh did did a really amazing he job. plays it so well and then like the makeup too it all like it all combines together and works very yeah. well and the way it was written and the way it was shot well done um i think it's it felt anticlimactic to me a little bit in the end because we only learn mm-hmm. actually a little bit more about odo uh the mystery like you say is kind of once it's done it's done and uh they do i guess get some artifact and some clues to his uh his origin in the Gamma Quadrant. Uh, yeah, it's true. Well, you know, they're continuing to, like, I guess, stake out the territory of the Gamma Quadrant. Also, uh, I like that scene where, like, O'Brien is, like, crawling around in the corridors, and it feels like something out of an alien movie. And you think, like, he's in deep danger, but he's really not. He just finds, like, some dead goo. Yeah, it's a good suspenseful thing. I feel like it's a definite tribute to Alien. Are you ready for the, the last episode of the day? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Let's hit up uh episode 13, Armageddon Game. O'Brien and Bashir help to rid two races of their biological weapons. However, both governments want to ensure no technical knowledge of the weapons can survive. Now, basically, these people are are trying to murder O'Brien and Bashir, and so they're uh, on the run trying to survive. While uh, there's the the sly sent back to the station that they're already dead, but Keiko and Cisco like figure out that that's not true, and they have to go rescue. O'Brien and Bashir. I'm not crazy about this one, but I love the Bashir O'Brien stuff that's in it. Yeah, I think of the various episodes that we've talked about where they've had some screen time together, it's the best one for that because it kind of, uh, you know, when people are sick or dying, which they are in this one, uh, they, they, you know, they kind of get through past the bullshit and they talk about some more serious stuff. But I assumed it was some kind of power play and instead it was more like, we're trying to kill them for peace. It's just what we have to do. Yeah. And I actually was like, somewhat sympathetic because they said they'd been at it they've been warring for centuries and you know at that point you know what are two more deaths they, they're minor sins in service to peace the the talani um, and the Kelleron. also not crazy about like their designs but no you know, it is what it were, is they were pretty ho-hum aliens we don't see um, them again okay well fair enough um i was thinking that this episode might have been a little bit inspired by the michael Crichton book rising sun you ever see that fathery or the movie uh, no, I'm unfamiliar with it. The real quick version is that it follows. It's like a techno thriller that's set in uh, that that uh, in in Japan, and I think follows a murder mystery that has you know some uh, camera footage of a murder. And it was the first time I became aware of what could be done with digital doctoring. This was like early '90s or even late '80s when it was written. I think early '90s, though, kind of circa Jurassic Park, and you know technology. Now we have deep fakes and stuff, which are ridiculous uh as to the level of realism they can get well i love seeing like o'brien go into soldier mode i love even bashir uh, got to be a little bit of a badass but like o'brien is a soldier (laughs) yeah yeah like like he he can he can switch back to from engineer to soldier when he needs to they they show that throughout deep space nine several different times when the shit hits the fan he will he will go back to being that the soldier fighting the cardassians and you actually get to see like some of like the ruins on the planet so the the idea of like like this war was really bad like it has like some impact we see some of the, the consequences of it um yeah i i actually like I, and i think part of the reason why i felt some sympathy even though they're 
clearly... I mean, they're trying to kill our heroes and they're bad people. But uh, they're also, like, utterly desperate people, presumably. And and I, I, I was thinking about, like, you know, I grew up, you know, in the, with the tail end of the specter of the Cold War. And it weighed heavily on my childhood. I had nightmares about nuclear war. And one of my favorite Trek books was one called Prime Directive that was about a botched effort by a first contact team that accidentally triggers a nuclear war. I think it ultimately gets undone with some time travel, but it's a really cool storyline. And it did because you actually see the bombs go off and you see the world dying. Like I'm kind of acutely aware of it and stories that use that as a hook tend to kind of get under my skin. And um, yeah, it is kind of a nuclear disarmament type story. Right. right. It is uh, hypothetically about uh, if, if the United States and the Russia at the height of the cold war, if they could disarm, and it would require killing two innocent people, let's say, to really fully throw away all the nukes. Would it be worth it? And I'm like, on one level, I would say yes in the grand scheme of things. But when you're watching a fictional show and you know those people, when that person is somebody you love. Well, couldn't you make them just like promise to like leave and not come back to your space and like then you don't have to kill them? Like that seems pretty good, too. I mean, the way they set it up is after centuries of warfare, they're just at their wits end. You know, they are willing to commit crimes. And, you know, like, normally I would say, well, you know, like, well, some crimes are forgivable. Stealing a loaf of bread to, sur- to survive is forgivable. Uh, is killing, killing seems like it should be unforgivable, but two people to save a world? Don't the needs of the many? It's not the story they were telling, though. Like, if they were, I think they would have wanted to be more nuanced. And I did wish that they had said, like, what happened to these people at the end of this. Like, they got busted. But it was not about, like, whatever their punishment was. I assume they got, like, Starfleet sanctions or something. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, I, I also enjoyed, like, Cisco's speech that he gives. And and well, just about, like, when they get the news that, like, they died. And Oh, yeah. And then Quark, when he said, uh, you know, they were good customers. They always paid their bar tab. And yeah. Good, the that, good, that was good like customers are as rare as Latinum. That was that was a that was a meaningful thing to him. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of the rules of acquisition, or uh, he didn't he didn't reference it as a rule of acquisition. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um... And then Keiko's thing, where like she's like, I know it's fake because Miles never drinks coffee in the afternoon. And then the other episode is like, I drink coffee in the afternoon all the time. What are you talking about? Because that made it feel so real. Like, I was like, couples are like that. Like people people like pride themselves on like, oh, I know like all this stuff about this person. And it's like, oh, you actually like got this one wrong. But it's like it's something yeah. you probably like never talk about or articulate to one another. So if, of course I, you might get things like that wrong. I think that's a good point, but I kind of didn't like that because I thought it undermined Keiko as like investigator, you know, um to say that she actually it turns out it was just mere luck that she happened to step on uh, get you know stumble onto the conspiracy. it was worth it for me i thought the joke was worth it I, I think you make a good case for it um but yeah the heart of the episode is o'brien and bashir while they're trying to get this this device going uh and you know the bashir family man like, versus like the like the young bachelor like they, they talk yeah, about that who's stuff. also like a kind of an elite you know uh uh, sort of an elite in, somewhat intellectual yeah, the, the, uh student you know the english doctor versus like yeah. the the irish uh non-commissioned officer yep and yet of course it's uh he's uh the uh it's the uh the the, the engineer who's got to talk the amateur engineer through through all of this of what's going on uh I, well you know if you if there's a metaphor there uh then they are they are saying that O'Brien probably has the more 
<laughs> vital skill set. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, but on the other hand, he would probably he'd be dead if not for Bashir. So I guess they they each did their did their, played their part. This is where they're starting but, to develop into the friendship that they'll get into in the later seasons that I that I really yeah. Like. They talk about they talk about women. <laughs> they talk about like their relationships and. The one that you know, the the closest that Bashir ever got to uh, to marriage. He had a foot fetish. Had the most exquisite feet, chief, or <laughs> something like that. Uh, yeah, and uh, O'Brien talks uh, says like, "Hey, you think marriage is like the end of things?" And he's like, "To me, it's like you know, an ongoing adventure that you know, even the tough parts are worth it because you're walking, you're coming home to somebody you love." And he kind of shuts down the bachelor view that you know basically he's you know marriage is something that's the end of things or whatever um it's a it's a good talk uh i think uh for sure is right but <laughs> no, <I'm> just... <laughs> the runabout switcheroo is kind of cool at the end oh yeah yeah they actually um play up the fact that their like sensors are down and um they essentially they in, in in effect kind of do a version of the same switcheroo that was done with the doctored footage uh that you know would would have killed off Bashir and yeah, have a taste of your own medicine that's right now i hope your world goes back to war for <laughs> centuries yeah that's what they're going to do is they're going to beam down some, some more of that harvester napalm or whatever and fuck them up um uh, yeah, no, I thought it was a good episode. Uh, maybe not great, but uh, but like definitely the the character moments were strong, and uh, yeah, I kind of liked seeing them. Uh, Bashir and uh, and O'Brien got to also like roam around corridors with guns, looking like badasses. Yeah, and yeah, more of the uh, the season two character stuff that they they weren't quite ready to get into in season one, or as much as they will in in later seasons of the show. But I think that's it. I think that's gonna do it for today. Yep, uh, that was uh, that was fun to go through. Uh, I've been enjoying the uh, been enjoying this uh, trip through season two, and uh, you know, uh, we'll round it out next time. I'll see if uh, they manage to uh, have a good uh, good finale the same way uh, the same way the first season did. Well, we'll be talking about that next when we do season two, part two of two. And until then, as always, live long and prosper, y'all. Listen to the Text Trek podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at text-trek.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash text-trek. And follow Fathery on Twitter at txtrek. Please support us by liking our videos and subscribing to our channel on YouTube. Thank you and take care.